morning, brothers and sisters. Let's open in prayer before we look further into our study of uh, theology and application of prayer. This morning, we'll be in the book of Nehemiah. You can open to Nehemiah 1. Go to the front of your Bible. You get back to First and Second Samuel and Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fellowship we have in Christ. We've been given your word. We have your spirit. So help us now, we pray, um, to understand the, the gracious gift of prayer that we do have and how to pray more effectively, biblically. In Christ's name, amen. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and, according to Jerus- and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, The word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Uh, With the king's permission, um, Nehemiah left for Jerusalem around 445 B.C., Um, under the reign of King Cyrus. Almost two generations after uh, the first exiles had returned. By this time, it's Artaxerxes, but um, King Cyrus is is when the exiles began to return. And I want you to notice, if you will, on the screen, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, At the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, 
so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Uh, Judah collapsed around uh, 587 B.C. Um, in its exile, um, all the men of significance and importance were taken to Jerusalem. Um, Daniel, of course, was one of those young men that we've spent the last two weeks um, looking at, um, his life and uh, the prayers that he prayed. So after 70-plus years there in exile, um, here's Cyrus, as, as God had foretold through Isaiah, the prophet, uh, before Cyrus was ever born. Isaiah 44, 28, notice. Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my, all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. That was prophesied 150 years before Cyrus. Notice chapter 45, verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name, I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, the only important thing to know here is that God did all this. God is at work here. Um, Amos, the prophet, he had said about the collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, he said this, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Okay, that, that is even terrible things, even disastrous things, even exile of his own people. It was the Lord's doing, ultimately. He's the primary cause of all this. So here's God at work in history, as we have seen over the past few weeks. And God was moving the hearts and minds um, and the aspirations of, of pagan dictators, pagan leaders. He's at work behind it all. God's in control. And during all of this, um, we've been looking at the prayers of some. And that is the prayers of men amidst great conflict. We looked at the prayer of Hannah in another context, in the midst of great conflict. Now, over the years, many books have been written on prayer. Many. And some of them, uh, they can be a bit misleading. They're good books, and they, be they begin with the premise that we need to learn to pray from the Bible. So far, so good. 
So far, so good. And then they take this giant leap, and they assume that the prayers in the Bible are model prayers of people who are experts in the field of prayer. Have you read these? So they say, we need to learn to pray like these great saints because they seem to have cornered the market on prayer. But the prayers we find in the Bible, especially here under the Old Covenant, uh, they're not general prayers in a normal sense. They're models of a very um, serene, faithful prayers of people who are not super confident prayers. They're prayers of people who are suffering, disappointed, and frustrated. These aren't great giants of the faith. They are now, as we read Hebrews 11, but here we we read prayers that that are gut-wrenching. Prayers that, that question God. Prayers sometimes that argue with God. That's what we read. People, they're wearing their heart on their sleeve. And many prayers in the Bible are often prayers of disappointment. Fair to say? So we oftentimes miss the fullness of how God works through prayer when we read some of these books out there. Because these people lived in a very disappointing world. We live in a disappointing world. And he works through very honest, very authentic prayers like these to deal with the tension we find in this life. And that is tension between what God has promised, the tension between what God has promised and the way things are. And this shows us how God works in us. This is what we're seeing throughout redemptive history. How God works in us and and through our prayers. Back in Daniel 8, we looked at last week. He was given a vision of the future. That is the future of the world. Daniel was given a vision of the work of evil in the world. We touched on that. And then at the end of Daniel 8... The brother has to take a couple days off of work. I mean, he's left lying in a heap. Daniel 8, verse 27. Who wouldn't be? And then in Daniel 9, we looked at that great prayer that he prayed on behalf of the people in exile. Daniel cries out to the Lord. It's a long prayer. Having learned from Jeremiah, Daniel sees that the exile will last 70 years. He begins to plead with God to come through on his promise. Lord, this is what you said. This is what you promised. And he prays out of his frustration. He prays out of some 
kind of confusion. Remember, he's been given visions prior to that prayer, and then he'll be given more visions. But when when we read that prayer, as we did, at the end of the prayer, what changes? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. But he is able to cope with the fact that Judah's, Israel, uh, Judah's return to Jerusalem won't be the ultimate answer to his prayer. Remember, he says, you're going to have to wait for the anointed one to come. You're going to have to wait for the Messiah to come to provide true healing, true forgiveness, true atonement, and everlasting righteousness. but he was able to take comfort. So what, what we see in that prayer is not really a, a, a model prayer in a simple sense, right? But it's God working out his sovereign, decreed will through a man who prays through his disappointment. He's experiencing growing pains. It's just a man. And he's growing to realize that the tension between God's promises are in line with what's going down on the ground. (laughs) Right? Is that the tension we live in? God's promises and what's going on down on the ground, down here, down in life, down on this earth. So what's he doing? What was he doing in Daniel's life? He's working out the gospel. He was working out the message of the new covenant into Daniel's life. That's what was going on. That's the big picture. It's amazing. So here in Nehemiah, a couple generations later, we see the same exact thing. Nehemiah, the trusted cupbearer of the anointed king, another king, has made it back to Jerusalem. And now he, he enters in with the third wave of returning exiles, Nehemiah. And by chapter 9, okay, we move forward. By the time you get to chapter 9, the walls have been rebuilt. The Bible's been preached by Ezra. Remember, they build a podium. They build a pulpit. He stands up above the people. He preaches the word. He preaches God's law. He gives a sense of its meaning. He's got men on his right. He's got men on his left. They go out among the people. Do you understand what you've just heard? The people have repented. Nehemiah records for us another long prayer. That is in response to chapter 8. You find that in chapter 9. In most of it, when I say Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah um, records the prayer. It's mostly prayed and offered up by the Levites. And again, that's in response to the expositional preaching of chapter 8. I love that chapter, chapter 8. And I want to preach that chapter sometime again soon. It was the first chapter, it was the first text I taught at Pacific Hope, 2006. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel 
And Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly. Verse 4, he stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. He has men on his right, he has men on his left. He opened the book, verse 5, for he was above the people. As he opened it, the people stood. That's why we have a pulpit. That's why it's above the people. It's not me above the people. It's the word above the people. And it's to be heralded. It's not a suggestion to be proclaimed, preached. Amen? Here he is. Here he is. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. 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 He preaches, and he preaches, and he preaches. All day he preaches. And then there's a repentant response that remembers the horrible history um, of the people. Chapter 9. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel will assemble with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, dust on their heads. And then verse 5, we hear the Levites. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with their hosts. Verse 6, the earth and all of it and, and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham. And brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. And he goes on. He goes on in verse 20, you gave, <clears throat> you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Verse 23, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had toured their forefathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land. Verse 25, they captured fortified cities and a rich land. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. And cast your law behind their backs. Killed your prophets who had warned them, in order to turn them back to you, they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made, in, who, who made them suffer. Verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil against you, before you, and abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Many years you bore with them, verse 30, you warned them by your spirit, yet they would not give ear, therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, verse 31, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful. Verse 36, behold, 
We are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So here's, here's this, this prayer that remembers the horrible history of God's people. So the wall has been built, rebuilt. The word has been heard. The people here are in sackcloth and ashes, dust on their head. But Nehemiah knows that this place is populated by a people who are going to mess things up again. And then in chapter 13, Nehemiah takes a leave of absence, goes back to Persia, and there's ongoing disobedience. When he returns, an an alliance was made with the enemies, with their enemies for personal gain. We read that. The temple was desecrated again. That is, it was defiled once again. Nehemiah comes back. He throws furniture out the window, literally. He cleanses the place. If you look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 13. I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out the chamber. Out of the chamber, I gave orders. They cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and frankincense the sabbath was being violated verses 15 through 20 in those days i saw judah judah i saw the people in judah treading the wine press this is on the sabbath you have foreigners coming into the city bringing in fish doing all this business on the sabbath verse 18 did not Your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And then he closed in and locked them in, closed the gates, and the merchants would have to wait outside the gates and so on. In verse 23, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Intermarriage with pagans. Then in verse 24 and 25, uh, we see a a confrontation. We see some cursing. We see some hair pulling. We see some punches thrown. And a mandatory oath. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out the hair. I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women among the many nations? There was no king like him, as he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Don't dabble. So he causes some ruckus. Or he's responding to ruckus. And then notice there are, there are a number of remember me prayers. Verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my 
my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This may sound like self-righteous prayers. You know, oh, Lord, look what I've done, look what I've done, but there's more here than that. Verse 22, remember this also in my favor. Oh, my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 31, remember me, oh, my God, for good. Remember me, O Lord. Remember, remember, remember. So these remember me prayers, right? He's calling out the Yahweh to come through on his promises in a context, in a context where it seems as though all Nehemiah's efforts are in vain. Put yourself in his place. A prayer that says basically, Lord, use my apparent fruitless efforts to advance your work in the world. Apparently, I haven't had much of an impact here. Why? Because, Lord, you said. You said. Gary Miller, the author of Calling on the Name of the Lord, he says that the three words that are sometimes the hardest to hear overall are, but you promised. If you're a parent. But dad, you promised. Now when someone plays the but you promised card, it almost always guarantees that someone's been hurt, or there's some sense, some sense of guilt builds up within. You promised. Sometimes relationships are harmed because you promised, right? We know damage has been done when we hear, but you promised, right? You don't want to hear that as a parent. You don't want to hear that from your aging parents. Son, you promised, right? Your mama, but you promised. Broken promises, the point, take their toll. And over time, they chip away at trust. And they can erode the heart of our relationship with the one to whom we broke our promises. We didn't keep these promises. So it produces a deep sense of disappointment that obviously can harm the relationship. And that is exactly what can happen when it comes to God in our personal relationship with God. The, 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 the single biggest problem that we probably face in the area of prayer is a deep sense of disappointment. This is where we have to be on guard. Because you don't think that God has either heard your prayers or he doesn't come through in his promises. And then all of a sudden we become embittered. He hasn't delivered on the extravagant promises we read in Scripture. And it's not that we don't believe him. It's just though, as though it seems he hasn't come through with those promises. Listen to some of these. I don't have these on the screen, but just listen to this. 
Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver and you, sh- and you shall glorify me. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The Father may be glorified in the Son. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who's, who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. James 4. You do not have because you do not ask. 1 John 5.14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay, now anyone out there thinking, there's a, there's a context to those prayers. I know that. Of course there are context to those prayers. And as I often remind us, the Bible wasn't written to us. The Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us. Thank you very much. I understand that. And hopefully you understand that. But if you've been part of the Lord's church... For any period of time, reading the Bible regularly, fellowshipping regularly, participating in studies regularly, we get a sense as we read the scriptures that there is this consistent principle where God is saying, look, if you pray, I'll answer. Amen? Amen. Now, we could go on. And we could provide a long list of people in the Bible who who prayed and were heard in a rather dramatic way. We've seen some of those. We've listened to the prayers of Abraham, some from Isaac, from Jacob, Moses, Hannah, Daniel, and here Nehemiah um, in our studies on the theology and application of prayer. But, you know, we pray, and we pray, and oftentimes it seems as though uh, prayer doesn't change much of anything at all. And over time, we may grow more and more disappointed as we persist. And then we're left saying silently, but you promised. Sure, be honest, be real. But oftentimes, the purpose of our prayers, we're called to pray, and oftentimes, prayer is God teaching us something that we would not learn any other way. He works in us, He works through our prayers. And he uses our prayers to teach us many things. Many things. For example, go back to Genesis 18. You're all familiar with this. This is Abraham arguing with God before God destroys Sodom. This seems more like a conversation. 
then it does prayer, but really it's the same thing. Whatever this looked like for Abraham, I, I, I really don't know. But prayer is conversing with God, so we'll just call it a prayer. If you want to get all technical on me, you can save it. <laughs> Notice what precedes the conversation. Verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? Righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God says, I'm going to do great things through Abraham, the one I have called to myself. So I need to teach him something important first. What he will do through him with Abraham is that which is good and just. So what does God do? He goes on now to teach Abraham about justice. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Obviously, God knows that's anthropomorphic language. God knows everything. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there. Remember, this is the end. Men, angels who appeared as men who, who were also there. So the men turned from there and they went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Here's Abraham before the Lord. Um, then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep them away? Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it. From you to do such a thing and to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you, far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. So the Lord answers, Yes. Sure. Sure. If there are 50 righteous, I'll spare the place. 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city? And he goes down, 40. So on. 30. Only, not, not, only let not the Lord be angry, verse 10. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. The Lord went his way, 
when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Why did Abraham not try and chisel him down to nine? Eight, five, three, two, one. Because he learned his lesson. He learned. The God of all creation is just. What's changed? Nothing except Abraham. <laughs> What's changed? The nature of God hasn't changed. The will of God hasn't changed. Abraham's changed. That is his grasp on the truth about God. That's what's changed. So this is quite a teaching exercise, amen? God is up there. You know, Abraham's going to try to argue with me. And I'm going to teach him that I'm just. This will have a significant effect on him. So a key part and purpose of prayer is to change us. We hear it all the time, amen? It's true. Part of the way that God deals with our frustrations, part of the way in which God deals with our disappointments and doubt is to spurn us on to continue to pray. Not to stop. And one of the biggest mistakes we can make is not to pray when we're feeling unspiritual. You ever feel unspiritual, so therefore you don't pray because I don't feel spiritual? Now, if there's sin hindering that communion, it needs to be repented of. What, are you going to fool God? You're an open book, right? Abraham's an open book. Daniel was an open book. Nehemiah is an open book. Israel was an open book. So oftentimes the, the point of prayer is God teaching us something that we would learn no other way. And if we stop praying, perhaps he won't teach us certain things we need to know. Kelvin describes prayer like this. John Kelvin. Institutes of the Christian religion. Quote, The chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits, we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel and which our faith has gazed upon. On account of these things, our most merciful Father, although he, nev he never either sleeps or idles, still very often gives the impression of one sleeping or idling, in order that he may thus train us, otherwise idle and lazy, to seek, ask, and treat him to our great good.
End quote. You know why some of us don't have a mind like that? Because God's gracious gift, we'd be puffed up with pride. So we're seeing here, are we not, just how many of the Bible's prayers are for the benefit of those who prayed them. Ultimately, it's for the glory of God, but it is for their benefit in the long run. Daniel, I don't know what went on to happen with him. But we know where he is. The anointed one who came. He's with the anointed one. Who came and made atonement for his soul. He just didn't see the whole picture at the time. Though he was given many visions, made him sick to his stomach, sick in his head, he fell down and dropped almost dead. God was at work. So don't give up praying, amen? Never give up that burden, whatever it is. Never give up on that burden. Whatever you're praying, whatever that burden is, don't give up, don't let in. Never give up on praying for the soul that you're praying for. Amen? Never give up. Don't give up until God gives you a revelation that you're to give up. Don't do it. And the soul that you're praying for, the only revelation you'll be given to stop is that they're dead. You don't pray for dead people. As long as they're breathing, continue to pray for them. Amen?